3: The Michael Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hello, good morning. Welcome to The Michael Reid Show. This is Ken Murray with you until 11 a.m. this morning. Lots of debate and discussion on the issues of the day. If you want to get in touch... Our text number is 0861800658. Well, the row over plans to make changes at Our Lady's Hospital in Navan is rumbling on lots of contradictions, lots of confusion and indeed a lot of angry people in the Navin and Meath area. Uh, joining us on the programme this morning is the Minister for Justice, Fine Gael TD for Meath East, Helen McEntee. So, uh, Minister, first of all, can I ask you, what is happening at Navin Hospital as you understand it? Well, good
0: morning, Ken. Um, well, what is happening at the moment is that there is no change happening. Uh, and that is a commitment that was given to us by Minister Donnelly following a number of conversations this week and obviously following a meeting that happened with the HSE uh, and with clinicians and representatives from both Navan and Drogheda. Uh, now, obviously, there has been a lot of discussion, not just in the last few weeks or months, but in the last few years around the changing nature of Navan Hospital uh, and in particular focusing on the accident and emergency. Uh, and I suppose what we have, and you know, at the outset, you said that a lot of people. Saying one thing, there seems to be different things being said. People are confused. We have, and I have, as an elected representative, as has my colleague Damien English and others, for many years been asking about changes around capacity, around investment, around the type of patients, around the the risk that is there or not there, uh, and trying to get answers to make sure that whatever services that we have, that they are the best services for the people in this county and that people have access to the best services possible and where we are now we have not gotten the answers to those questions there's talk about changes again and we are not satisfied that any of these questions have been satisfactorily answered and that is why there are no changes happening.
3: Okay, let me read you the opening line of the HSE statement issued on Monday. And it says, quote, the HSE has announced plans for the final step in the transition of Our Lady's Hospital Navin to a Model 2 hospital which will involve evolution of the hospital's emergency department to a 24-hour medical assessment unit with support from a local injuries unit. So as far as the HSE is concerned, uh, whether you agree with them or not, this is going Ahead, and if it's not going ahead, that then doesn't that then raise questions as to why the HSE made this announcement on Monday? Well,
0: what I can categorically say, having spoken to Stephen Donnelly a number of times this week, and him subsequently having talked to myself and Damien English, issuing a statement saying that this is not going ahead as suggested. So I don't think that can be any clearer. The minister has said questions have not been answered correctly, or they haven't been answered in the way that that. I think satisfies any of us uh, along the issues that I mentioned and maybe if I couldn't and it might take a moment but just to explain the meeting that we had the other day I had a number of very clear questions that I would see and they were based on the issue of capacity investment not just in Navan but obviously in Drogheda because we're talking about Drogheda taking the vast majority of patients if there were to be changes but also looking at patients so who is it going to Drogheda you know what is the age profile what is the risk there and the first question I asked was around capacity and around investment in Navon. And I appreciate not every small hospital, not every hospital can have all of the complements, can deal with all of the significant issues or the most severe patients. I appreciate that. I understand that. However, if you look at other small hospitals, Leash, Wexford, NACE, they all have their accident and emergency. And the one thing is that they have their acute surgery. Navan's acute surgery was removed a number of years ago. and My understanding is that the vast majority of the critical patients that we are hearing about, the risk, the 1,700, it is surgery related. So I asked, why can we not build back up our surgical team in Navan? And I did not get a clear response. I was told everywhere is different, not everywhere has everything, nothing is perfect. That isn't a clear answer to me. Why can we not build it back up to deal with the critical patients that are causing the real concern? And, and I have that concern too, the 1700. The second is around the investments. We keep being told that Drahada has enough, that it got 88 beds, We were also told the other day that half of those were for the closure in Dundalk, which happened after the fact. The people in Drogheda had to deal with the additional pressure for many years before they got the investment. The other half, if it was for Navan, it's already gone. The capacity is not there. The population has increased and Drogheda is bursting at the seams. So to be told that there will be additional beds, even though a capital plan announced a couple of weeks ago had absolutely no mention in Drogheda for this additional capacity, it is, is not fair to us when we have been asking for this for years. And the third piece is around the patients and where they go. And again, I, I, the, the, the 1,700 number that was given to us, the critical patients, I, I want to make sure that they're in the right place too. The 8,500 who will come in from the GPs and that will stay the same, I appreciate that. But the 10,000 other patients, nobody could clearly say to me, where do they go? How do they know where to go? Are they not going to turn up in Drogheda and add a significant additional pressure? So to me, these are real, genuine questions, genuine concerns. This is not being political. This is me trying to ask a question. Where is the investment? Why can we not build up our capacity? And how do I turn around to my constituents and say this is... This is the direct path for you. This is where you go.
3: Communication between the HSE and the Department of Health. But uh, I want to take you back to Tuesday. I did an interview with your uncle, uh, Jerry McEntee, who is the clinical director of Our ladies' Hospital in Navin. He's the consultant surgeon at the Matter Hospital in Dublin. And uh, when I interviewed him, the que- one of the many questions I put to him was, what services will go in Navin? And this is what he had to say.
4: So accidents and trauma. They would not be coming into Navan anyhow. They already bypass Navan. Patients who get acutely ill, uh, seriously ill or critically ill, for example, heart attack or suspected heart attack, uh, seizure, uh, stroke, uh, those patients will either call the local ambulance service, and the local ambulance service now will be a rapid response vehicle with uh, advanced paramedics who are specialists in uh, meeting the critically ill patient, assessing them quickly and commencing first-line treatment and they will make the decision to bring that patient, uh, that critically ill patient to the nearest Model 3 or Model 4 hospital rather than they bring in that patient into the emergency department of Navan Hospital where if they don't have the critical care services they have to institute first line treatment and then transfer the patient out to the nearest model 3 or 4 so this is all it is nothing to do with cost efficiency this is all to do with patient
3: safety. Well, there you go, Minister. That's your uncle basically laying it on the line, basically saying that uh, there's going to be changes at Navin Hospital and if it doesn't happen in the next two weeks, it's going to happen in the next few months. So the changes are on the way. Isn't that the case? We seem to have lost the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee there uh, on our line. I don't know where the Minister has gone. Slight breakdown in communications. Uh, that's a bit of a, a pun there because uh, one of the issues that has arisen is the fact that the HSE... Uh, does not appear to be tic-tacking properly with the Department of Health uh, in relation to what the plans are for Navin Hospital. But we do have the Minister back on the line. Uh, minister, I don't know if you heard that clip of audio there from your Uncle Jerry, but the point I'm making is that what your Uncle Jerry, uh, the clinical director of Our ladies' Hospital in Navin, was saying, that changes are coming, and if they don't happen in the next two weeks, they're definitely going to happen in the coming months. Isn't that the case?
5: Well, firstly, I
0: have to stress that I have nothing but admiration and respect for Gerry and respect his position and exactly what he is saying I don't in any way contradict. As you've said, there's already a bypass mechanism in place for certain types of patients. But the figures that we were given last week, 21,000 plus patients from 2019, and it was 2019 because it is pre-COVID, so they they based it on those figures. the, The rapid response vehicle Firstly, this, this is the first we'd heard of this and this is the first time we had somebody from the ambulance service actually in a room with us. So that was positive, but obviously something that we and in particular Damien English has been asking for for years, where is the ambulance service in all of this. But the patients that he mentioned absolutely need to get the critical care that they need. I mentioned earlier the third of patients that already are referred by GPs, so that wouldn't change. But it leaves about 10,000 patients that I asked very clearly, where do they go? how do they know where to go at the moment they are presenting to the A&E so without a clear pathway how do they wake up tomorrow with changes in Navan and not decide well Navan is not there I am going to go directly to Drogheda and those patients then put additional pressure in Drogheda so I met Minister English and others the clinicians from Drogheda last week and they were very clear in saying firstly nobody has spoken to them about what they need or what their I suppose concerns are Secondly, that they don't have the capacity and they would have a very different view because they know patient flows as well. So I think we need to listen to all clinicians here that there is going to be a higher number than four or five a day coming to them from okay, now. Well, it would be much higher. So how do you deal with that risk then? So I, I'm not saying there isn't a risk here. I, I, I don't in any way disagree with what Jerry has said in terms of the risk. But nobody can answer me the additional risk then for you have people arriving in Drogheda, which doesn't have the capacity as it is, potentially elderly people, sitting, waiting in longer queues, and that in itself presents a risk. I'm not saying that as a clinician. I'm saying that coming from clinicians who are in Drogheda working now.
3: Okay. Well, let me play you another clip of audio. This is Paul Reid, the chief executive of the HSE, who was questioned yesterday by David Cullinan uh, at the Oireachtas Health Committee. And as far as Paul Reid is concerned... The situation is that there are safety issues at Navin Hospital and to be pretty blunt about it, Navan is not up to scratch. This is what uh, Paul Reid had to say.
6: In terms of what's happening in terms of Navin the Hospital overall, uh, well, we, we would say it's a realignment of the services that happen in Navin and realignment of the services that happen in Navin being some service proposed to be redirected to other hospitals, including Our Lady of Lords. Uh, the reason for that and the rationale for all, all of that is very significant and some very serious patient safety risks. Uh, have been highlighted uh, to me and the board of the HSE, and uh, with the department as well. The risks identified have been, first of all, there is no local emergency department governance in place in Navin Hospital. Uh, there's no acute surgical uh, service in place in Navin Hospital. An agency registrar uh, provides, uh, and, and not specialist in the emergency department, provides the cover in, in Navin. Um, and you know, there's there's very sig- significant issues in terms of one of the smallest ICUs in the country. Those risks has been highlighted to me very significantly by the chief clinical chief clinical officer of the HSE, uh, the clinical lead for acute services nationally, uh, the anaesthetists, specialists in the local hospitals, surgical specialists, physicians, NCHDs, and nursing, all the way to myself, as CEO, and the board of the HSE, and the Dáil, and the department. I, in my role as as CEO of HSE, have to take those risks very seriously. I take any risks associated with patient safety and and saving patients' lives very seriously. And and I hear
2: what you're saying there, Mr. Leader. So, current position,
6: if I can just finish, uh, sorry, Deputy, if I can't just finish on that. uh, So, I can't ignore that. I have to address it. We have very well aligned ourselves with the Department on it to progress a number of actions to make that safer. Now, obviously, I will take full cognizance uh, of government's concerns, and we will address government concerns in, in, through, through the process that we're in at the moment. But I can't ignore and won't compromise my role to address what I have to address right now.
3: There you have it, Minister. As far as Paul Reid is concerned, Navin is an unsafe hospital. So isn't the changes that uh, Gerry McIntyre outlined on Tuesday to us here on the programme, they're going to happen anyway, and it's not a case of if, it's a case of when. Isn't that the case?
5: Well, no, I don't think
0: that's the case. And I have to, again, stress, and I'll give an example, as a Cabinet Minister, if I'm bringing a memo to Cabinet that sets out something that I'm working on, or a plan, I do not bring that to Cabinet for sign-off without presenting it to all of my Cabinet colleagues so that if it impacts them in any other way that they have sight of it, that we can discuss it and that they can actually put their own plans in place. What's happening here is that, the Paul Reid or anybody else, has listened to one particular point of view which is a very important and very serious and we need to deal with the issue that has been stressed by those in Navan. but he has not listened to those who have huge concerns in Drogheda. And to make a decision that impacts on another hospital without purely talking to them or putting the, uh, I suppose, the investment or the capacity in place, to me, is absolutely baffling. Well, can I just put... Yeah, Can quest, I just finish? Yeah, very this, quickly, to yeah. Is, to say that this is urgent, and I don't doubt that this isn't urgent, there was a capital plan announced four weeks ago and not a cent for Drogheda, to deal with what they told us that they were agreed and had agreed and was going to be okay. invested in. Well, we, psychiatric care for elderly, there was investment in CT and there was investment, I think, in modular buildings yeah. to replace them. There was nothing that they have said they are going to do, okay. and Paul Reid keeps saying they'll address concerns. That was what our meeting was for sure. last week, but, but, and now they still have to talk about it. Okay,
3: I have to put the point to you. The HSE is saying one thing, the Minister for Health is saying something else, in fact saying the opposite. Would you accept that the handling of this has been nothing short of shambolic?
0: What I would say is we have been asking for questions to be answered for years. So for the HSE to say that this is urgent, it must happen now. If that was the case, why has all of this investment not happened? Why have they not responded to concerns? Why has it taken a meeting last week to to, to answer some of them? But now they're saying we will come back with more answers in due time I am really frustrated that we are at this point where I am being blamed and others are being blamed for potentially somebody's life being put at risk when we have been saying for years, all we want is the best for people in our county. All we want is to have the appropriate services. And if people have to go elsewhere, that's fine. But when I have clinicians and the director of services in Drogheda saying to me, we don't have the capacity, this is a risk that's going to be now put on us. We haven't been spoken to. We don't have any additional investment. Okay. I have to take that seriously too, and I take that very seriously.
3: Obviously, this boils down one way or another to bad planning. Just one final question, Minister, before you go, and uh, I know we've overran on the Navin Hospital situation. Uh, you're a former Minister for European Affairs. In terms of the Northern Ireland Protocol and the legal action by the European Commission against the United Kingdom, um <sighs> Where are we at and what are the implications for the island of Ireland if the European Commission uh, can't put manners on the British?
0: Well, look, we're, we're not in a good place. I think that's very clear what happened this week with the publication of this new bill. It was not only disappointing for many, many reasons, but it was hugely damaging, I think, to the trust that has been built up and developed over the years. We've spent years working on the protocol, What the UK or, well, the, the bill that they have presented is, is a complete unilateral action. They've gone off on their own without discussing this with anybody. And the only way that we resolve this is by everybody working together. So that is what we are calling for. The EU has reignited, essentially... Um, infringement proceedings that they had initiated with the previous Internal Market Bill but they have also initiated two new infringement proceedings because this is essentially a breach of international law so it does not leave us in a good place what we need is for people to get around the table we need the UK the Prime Minister with our colleagues in the North and the EU to get around the table, there are options there there are papers there and we are very welcome uh, or we are very ready and and will welcome obviously that if it can take place.
3: OK, Minister, I'm going to have to leave it there. That's the Minister for Justice and Fine Gael, TD for me, the East Helen McIntyre. More to come. We'll take a break.
1: Michael Reed, Reed
3: on LMFM. Now, the number of households in energy poverty in the state is estimated to be 29%. That's almost one house in every three, and that's according to new figures published today by the Economic and Social Research Institute. The level exceeds the highest previous recorded level of energy poverty, which reached 23% in 1995. It seems like a very long time ago. To assess where we're at, I'm joined on the line right now by Barry. Roontree of the ESRI who is the co-author of the new report Energy Poverty and Deprivation in Ireland. First of all Barra how bad is the situation?
2: What our research shows is that it really is impacting significantly on households now so we looked at the price increases in energy between January last year 2021 and April and that's what we find that if you take into account those price increases that the, the measure of energy poverty which is spending more than a tenth of your income on energy, including electricity, but not including things like motor fuel, that that's up to as you say almost a third uh, at, at the moment, and it could rise further. Um, so again, we have seen that there have been some price increases in May. Again, how much further fuel rises or whether there is further increases really depends, I suppose, on the global situation. It's not really something that that that, that is much in the control here, and and that really does have the potential to impact on households more. So again those increases that we saw between January last year and April uh, this year come out at about an average of 21 euro a week Um, and then if you include motor fuels nearer 40 Um, and with another 25% rise which is what some of the the, the providers were talking about in May would bring that uh, total to almost 70 euro a week on average with significant differences across families of course.
3: Is this all driven by the war in Ukraine or are there other factors at work? It's
2: mo- most of it's driven by that and the rise in energy. Price. We had started the energy prices creep up a bit, uh, I suppose, b- before the war, before the, this year, towards the end of last year. Um, but it, it has been, you know, particularly acute because of, of the, the war in Ukraine and the invasion uh, by the Russian Federation. So that really has been kind of driving things, and, and, and that seems like likely to be one of the key determinants of how long this continues for
3: we had Paddy common on the program yesterday from the automobile Association he was saying that uh, the price of petrol for example uh, could rise to a peak of around two euro 50 cent uh, before the f- the prices start to fall again are you hearing anything similar
2: uh, I I wouldn't uh, be making many forecasts we, we, like you know it's very hard to hear these things go and it really is down to you know can kind of these more political factors than any kind of fundamentals but 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 you know it's not implausible. Um, and again, those impact th- th- those such price increases would have big impacts on houses. And it really poses then a dilemma for the government because it can't compensate everyone for the entire loss. Doing so would cost billions and billions. So we estimate, even just for the price increases we've seen to date, there would be at least $4 billion for the household sector and let aside businesses. So, you know, if it were to try to do that, if we were to try to compensate everyone for the entire loss, um, it would be kind of you know, starting to chase its own tail and, and that, that's likely to, to risk fueling um, further non-energy inflation in Ireland. So given that it has to be kind of like strategic and, and targeted and who, who, who it thinks it's most important to protect and how, and, and, and how it wants to spread, I suppose, that like protection across the population.
3: A lot of people have been getting their electricity bills in the last few weeks, and they've noticed increases. Uh, the fact that the government introduced a carbon tax at the beginning of May, is that feeding in to this increase in costs?
2: No, not really. That That's kind of a very, very small... Like This is predominantly and almost entirely driven by the, the increase in prices, which you've seen, and which is, again, mostly because of the war and the political situation. The carbon tax is a very small component of, a, of anything. But, but, but also, a really, a really, I really suppose what, what there has been some actions taken to, 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 I suppose, compensate households. So we've actually seen the PSO fall um, and it's going to fall again. So that, that's the kind of the, the, the flat rate charge on people's electricity bills, um, and, and you know that, that more than offsets any changing carbon tax. So it, 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 that's not really what's at play here. Really, it is about the um, uh, changes internationally, and, and those leave us as a country as a whole worse off. So it really is then a question for government about who it wants to protect. And and we know from that perspective that those who have been most adversely affected are those on lower incomes, on fixed incomes in terms of welfare payments or that.
3: Yeah, based on your study, have you found that because of the rise in energy costs, uh, low-income families are having to sacrifice or make sacrifices in other areas, in other words, they're buying less food or they're not going to the pub as often as they did and that basically their disposable income has tightened up? Have you found that?
2: Yeah, that's right. So really, you know, these the, these increases are are have much greater impact on lower income than than higher income households, so it's you know, uh, almost 4%, the, even the, the price increases to date are almost 4% of net income after tax and transfer uh, uh, income for the lowest, uh, the poorest fifth of the population versus kind of, you know, about 1.5% for the highest income fifth. So they're disproportionately affecting lower income households, and that's inevitably going to lead to lower income households having to make decisions about, you know, uh, how how much to heat their home versus how much to spend on fuel or other activities. And you know, we, we know as well that they have lower income households tend to have. Lower levels of savings, so they don't have the same financial buffers to fall back on. Uh, so again, that really does, I suppose, pose a challenge for the government. In it has to decide; it can't protect everyone from the entire increase. So it has to choose who to protect and which groups to prioritise. And from that point of view, if it decides that it would like to protect those most adversely affected, those on lower incomes, maybe older households, then something along the lines of a Christmas bonus-style double welfare payment. Is really kind of the, the the best targeted way of kind of trying to do that. Even, okay. even in term, uh, even if you want to go a bit broader, the the. Elect Something like the electricity credit that was done before, both of those are much better ways, much better targeted ways at uh, supporting those households being most affected than cutting taxes on fuel. Sure. Uh, and that, that's just really kind of the, one of the key messages, I suppose, from our research.
3: Yeah, just one final question, Barra. I mean, if 29%, that's almost one in three households, are living in energy poverty, and it's only June, what are the implications for the winter?
2: Well, again, it really depends what happens to energy prices, but we know that bills, you know, they fluctuate through the year. So at the moment, people, you know, I certainly haven't got my heating on, and particularly over the last few days, and then, you know, we're maybe unlucky enough that we don't have to have air conditioning most of the time during the winter, during the summer. But when it does get to winter, we know that those bills are going to land into uh, into people's doors. And that's going to, that, that again kind of emphasises, I suppose, one of the key things about getting the support package right is the timing of it. Because, you know, if you, even if you just increased, say, you know, welfare payments by five euro a week, it, it, people are already kind of hard pressed. They're going to, you know, expecting or requiring them to kind of save that and put that aside to pay the energy bill when it comes in in the winter is maybe not the best way of doing it. Maybe a better way to do it is, as I said, kind of a, something along the lines of a Christmas, uh, um, uh, a Christmas bonus style payment in the autumn when those bills are landing, as you say.
3: Okay, we're going to leave it there. That's Barrett Roentree there, who's an economist with the Economic and Social Research Institute and co author of the new report, Energy Poverty and Deprivation in Ireland, which is predicting that energy bills could rise by as much as 70 euro per week. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break.
1: Michael the Reed
3: on LMFM. Now, if you want to get in touch, our text line is 0861800658. That's 0861800658. Uh, coming up a little bit later on in the programme, we'll be returning to the Navin Hospital situation. I'll be talking to the new Carhirlock of uh, Meath County Council, Nick Killian and uh, Emer Tobin, who's an AIM2 councillor uh, on Meath County Council. Now, just to go to some of your comments, uh, Pat Boy, <coughs> excuse me, uh, and this relates to the comments we dealt with yesterday by President Higgins on housing. Pat Inathboy says the government must be gutted. The most recognised man in the country has slated them on their failure to address the housing crisis. The government needs to hang their heads in shame on this particular issue. Regarding the cost of fuel, PJ says uh, fuel was €2.03 in Drogheda yesterday. An hour later, it was €2.09. How did it get up by so much in a few hours when it is the same fuel in their tanks? It is such a rip-off. On the issue of Navin Hospital, Margaret got in touch via text. She said it wasn't just Labour who broke promises they made before election 2011 – Fine Gael broke the promise they made to the people of Meath when they said that if they were elected, the new regional hospital would be built in Navan. within their five year term. They are in 11 years now and no new hospital has been built. And if they have their way, we won't even hold on to the one we currently have. As regards the comments made by President Michael D. Higgins on housing, Paddy was in touch to say the government are only miffed because they know he is speaking the truth. And it was interesting to see on the news uh, last night that the Taoiseach, Mihal Martin, wasn't going to be drawn on the comments made by Michael D. Higgins. In fact, uh, the Tánaiste... Uh, Leo Varadkar was on another radio station and he all but admitted that the uh, the Taoiseach, uh, or rather that the president was correct, that there is a problem in housing and uh, it's something that's causing a lot of headaches for the current administration. Anyhow, we have more to come. We'll take a break.
1: Michael Reed on
3: LMFM. Now, Meath County Council is seeking a meeting with the Minister for Health over the planned closure of the emergency department in Navin Hospital. I'm joined on the line, would you believe, from Copenhagen by the new chair of Meath County Council, that's uh, Nick Killian, and Emer Tobin, who's an A2 councillor on Meath County Council. So, Nick, uh, you're looking for a meeting with the Minister for Health. What exactly will you be seeking from the Minister?
7: Well, first of all, th- thank you for uh, allowing us on this line to discuss this very important topic from a, a Meads County Council perspective and indeed need population perspective. At our meeting on Monday, there was total unanimity right across the political divide that we're not accepting the HSE's proposal to downgrade Navan Hospital. Uh, it's just totally unacceptable. And... My, I've been instructed by the members of Mead County Council to organise and seek an urgent meeting with Minister Donnelly to discuss what's been proposed. Now, I know since Monday there's been a lot of talk um, with Leo Varadkar announcing that, and Michael, uh, Minister Donnelly, um, that it has not been sanctioned. So uh, the word that worries me in all of that is the word it has not been sanctioned, because we are very much aware that the HSE are obviously fully to this proposed downgrade. We want an upgrade of Navin Hospital and we want the, the necessary staff and the necessary infrastructural changes to be made to make it into a, a proper A&E unit for the people of County Meads. What's obviously not been taken into account and we'll know our figures uh, shortly and that is the huge size of the population in County Meads. When they went about uh, closing other hospitals in, in around other counties, we were dealing with smaller units of, of people where here we have well over 200,000 people living in County Mead dependent on A&E services in, in, in our county. And we all know, Ken, that uh, Drogheda, <laughs> Our Lady of is full A&E, uh, Mullingar similar, and Blanchardstown similar. So the proposal, and I listened to Dr Henry on the re- on the other morning on the radio, and he's saying this is going to happen and that's going to happen. Nothing has been put in place. To replace, and the other, the idea of having an emergency uh, unit there, uh, and they're talking about you have to have a doctor's letter. Where are you going to get a doctor in need after nine o'clock, after five o'clock in the evening? So these are all the issues that we will be putting to Minister Donnelly, and we want them to listen. We have the support of the political groupings in the county, right as I said, right across the political divide and none. So we just want to move ahead, meet the minister, and stop the nonsense about downgrading the hospital.
3: Imur Tobin, uh, you've been very uh, active and vocal in relation to Navan Hospital. We heard Paul Reid of the HSE say at the Oireachtas Health Committee yesterday uh, that he has great concerns over what's called uh, safety issues at Navan Hospital. It's the third smallest hospital in the country, and basically... Uh, All the expertise, the top experts in the region are at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. All the best equipment in the business is in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. And all the best facilities are in Our Lady of Lords Hospital, Drogheda. Doesn't it make sense that if you have all the experts in Drogheda, that people who find themselves either in a car accident or in a domestic accident, uh, whether they live in Athboy or Navan or Dunsany or wherever, they should go to where the best care is, and that is Our Lady of Lords Hospital in Drogheda? Isn't that the case?
5: Well, on paper, Ken, you're absolutely right. People should go to a hospital where all the expertise is. But the problem is people can't access that care because the queues are absolutely enormous. We all know the waiting list across the country and all the different a and care targets were that um, patients were to be admitted. Um, two-thirds of patients were to be admitted within six hours of arriving at the hospital. That doesn't happen. Two hospitals in court just this week came out and said, that patients have to wait over 21 hours to be seen. So I think it's kind of um, disingenuous to suggest all these fantastic facilities available in Drogheda, that's where these uh, people should go, but they can't access them because the, the capacity isn't there. We've talked endlessly about the growing population in needs, and a certain amount of that is aging, so the demand is already going to increase. So why would any right-thinking HSE person think we need to take capacity out of the system Everybody will tell you, certainly I was on the streets in Kells last Saturday, people were in Navin getting petition signatures on behalf of the Save Navin Hospital campaign. People are absolutely scratching their head going, what in the world is behind this decision? There's no transparency. We're not getting any level of detail except to say, well, this decision... We've mooted um, 10 years to close Navinany, and we're sticking by that suspicion. We're living in a different world 10 years later. Okay, but... Y- huge y- numbers of people moving into into Navan and leave. And to state that people have to go outside our county now to get emergency health care makes absolutely no sense.
3: Okay, and but... Uh, but yeah, but you've accepted with my, my question that it makes sense to go to Our Lady of Lords Hospital in Drogheda where the expertise is. If, for example, uh, the Department of Health uh, announced that it's going to expand uh, the bed and staff capacity at Our Lady of Lords Hospital, then doesn't that mean that uh, the concerns you've expressed earlier on uh, don't become concerns because people will go to Drogheda and they'll get the best care?
5: It would certainly ease things if capacity was increased. But if we look at the waiting times across every A&E across the country, you know, we're not going to change things quickly in terms of people's um, waiting times. 21 hours down in court, I think 40% of patients last year waited over 12 hours. I mean, the evidence is there across the country, Ken, that capacity is not in the system. And to say to a a population that's 200,000 people strong, sorry guys, you don't... Uh, warrant having your own standalone emergency department. You've got to go elsewhere. And you know yourself, Connolly um, uh, medical staff were out on a protest a few months back saying they couldn't take any people from outside their uh, area. Drogheda has come out the same. Even Mullingar on Monday this week said consider um, other options. Please don't come to to the A&E in Mullingar. And also the matter came out and said to people, avoid coming to the emergency department there. So I just don't understand what the evidence of the overruns and all these EDs. Why the government is, is, and the HSC is saying this needs to flow in meads. I'll tell you from talking to hundreds of people last weekend, people are reeling from the absolutely what they would see is a reckless decision that is going to put people's health and lives at risk. And you mentioned there about, um, um, you know, it, it's more dangerous that possibly uh, to treat people in meads What about all the adverse incidents and extreme incidents that have happened within the last five years in this country? From 2017 to 2021, there was a 32% increase in adverse incidents. 79,000 has jumped to 105,000 adverse uh, incidents. And extreme incidents, which means catastrophic health outcomes and death, that has jumped from 373 579. Okay, but These are people lives we're talking about here.
3: Let me put that same question to Nick Killian. Nick, uh, on the basis that the expertise is in Drogheda, and this has been a policy for some years where the government is creating centres of excellence, as they call them, whereby uh, in various regions around the country, there is one top-notch ho- hospital with all the best doctors, all the best consultants, all the best equipment, all the best facilities. Are you saying or do you agree with Emer along the lines of that if the bed capacity was expanded at Drogheda, then you wouldn't have a problem with the winding down of the emergency department in Navan.
7: We want, in County Mead, our own hospital looking after the, uh, in excess of 200,000 people, and which is growing. And this also can have an effect on the economy of the county. We're trying to attract an industry. And if we haven't got the facilities for people to come in and work and live in County Meath, they don't want to be travelling off in an ambulance to and that's the other situation. We don't even have uh, an ambulance service at the present time that's capable of dealing because of the delays and the uh, time factors. Uh, Ambulances coming from Monaghan to look after accidents in County Meath. So the HSE are speaking out of both sides of their mouths and um, this is a trust factor. I certainly uh, do not trust the words of the HSE at this particular point in time. Now, I realise that these people have to have a job to do and have to go out and say what they're told to say um, by their by their bosses. But that's not, we're not accepting what they're saying. And the people, I and mean, this is a time where people, where the HSE and the government have to listen to the people of the county there is anybody that I've met over the last four weeks, and the subject has come up. Want to use Navan? They have faith in Navan. They have trust in Navan. Now, yeah, but it's, we it's need the need third smallest upgrade. hospital. No, we're looking for an upgrade. We're looking for an upgrade, Ken. We're not. We're not looking for a downgrade to a level two hospital. We right, want an upgrade and proper services for the people, and we deserve it because then we can also help people in Westmeath and we can help people in Cavan and Monaghan as well if we have the proper service. I know, but
3: this didn't happen. County. Yeah, I think, as I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong. If I am wrong, I'll, I'll say I've got it wrong. But this didn't happen. For example, this thing of upgrading the hospital in Nina and Ennis didn't happen when uh, Limerick was being developed as a centre of excellence. The facts of the matter are. Look at
7: the problems in Limerick now. Out.
3: Well, I, I, I'm not fully aware of what the problems are in Limerick, but the point I'm making is that when the smaller hospitals yeah, Mary, were, were, were being wound down and people were crying locally for those local hospitals or those smaller hospitals to be upgraded, it didn't happen. So the likelihood is it's not going to happen in Navin. Isn't that the case, Emer? Well, look,
5: well, look the, 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 the one thing, Ken, I just want to draw people's attention to, there's five ICU beds also um, being removed from Navin Hospital. Now, we've just come out of, um, you know, the worst uh, extremes of COVID. And the whole discussion around COVID was to protect our ICU beds, protect overruns in all the hospitals. And that's one of the reasons Ireland has one of the most severe and strictest lockdowns in Europe, was to keep our health service afloat. And now, as things have eased, we're saying, yeah, now we don't need these five ICU beds. I mean... You know, it really, really is incredible that, you know, we're being expected to accept this. And yet, if I recall, when I look back to 2011, Fine Gael came out in their pre-election promise and said, let's get a 500-bed regional hospital in, in Leeds. Because, you know, this was, this was a pre-election promise, but obviously they had felt that there was a need for it because they knew the population was only going to go one way. And yet here we are faced today having to present the evidence at our full council meeting when we were discussing the whole thing, seeing the evidence is there that people's lives are going to be lost or they're going to have serious health outcomes unless the hospital and the emergency department is available to the whole county. And one last thing, Tim, for um, there's a huge number of people that have moved into these into nice recently. A lot of those people don't have cars. How are they going to get over to a different county to access emergency health care? Like people think, you know, our ambulance service is already under savage pressure, and and to expect people to be able to drive to another county to get care, when so many of our new um, inhabitants and youth don't have the, the the means to go over there.
3: So it's very hard. To I know, Eamonn, but I have to put the point to you. I have, I have to put the point. Yeah, but Emer, I have to put the point to you. The 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 Department of Health and the HSE have done their sums. They've looked at the trends. Drogheda, for example, is now the biggest town in Ireland. I think the population is somewhere between forty and fifty thousand. You have massive population in Leytown, Bettystown, uh, Ashburn. Uh, Stamullen is growing, uh, and that there's this massive growth in population in the East Meath area. So, exactly. so, so, They're logic
5: struggling with their own population, how in the, how in the name of reason are they going to be able to deal with another 30,000 people every single year? No,
3: no. But how the point the point possible. I'm making is the point I'm making is from from a common sense point of view, isn't it logical that Drogheda becomes the centre of excellence? Albeit that Our Lady of Lords Hospital uh, needs to expand its bed numbers, it needs to expanded staff and that logic says it's better to have all the best medics in the business in Drogheda rather than one or two experts in Navan and every time somebody is brought in for f- following an accident they're going to be transferred to Drogheda anyway does it not make sense that way
5: look for years and years and years the government and the HSE has chipped away at services in Navan hospital okay and now they're saying well we don't really have the infrastructure to help people with complex needs and I would say, you know, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy here in that they, they, um, what's the word, they allowed the situation to, arouse, uh, to, to, to arise and now they're saying that, you know, we can't help these people. In those cases, people who have severe, complex needs, I would say bring them to, to the matter to get the, the, the emergency health care. But there is hundreds and hundreds of other people with other daily issues where they'll need normal emergency health care. And NAM has done an excellent job in looking after those people for years And it makes absolutely no sense. And as I said before, it's dangerous and reckless. And it's very hard to go back to the people of this county and say, sorry, guys, you don't warrant having your own emergency department. We're not talking about a small county here, Ken. As I say, we're going to get some surprise, I imagine, when the census figures come out. It's probably going to be a lot more than we've even factored for. But on the ground, people are saying, they are absolutely so worried i mean the level of worry and stress people are feeling so insecure about their ability to be able to access healthcare has been removed and the government has not done the decent thing and explained okay. or even justified their decision.
3: Okay, well Nick, let me come back to you. Just looking at the HSE statement from Monday, it says that this reconfiguration, this is the term they're using, it's supported by the physicians, the surgeons, the anaesthetists, the junior doctors and the emergency department nursing staff. They all Believe that this is the right way to go to get the best outcome. So they're the people. Well, I the they're the people at the. UK I know, but they're, they're the people at the coalface.
7: Who, who live in my own village of Rotherhithe, working in Navin Hospital, and it's totally opposite to what uh, has been put out. This word reconfiguration is a great word, but. Uh, You know, and I know, and everybody else listening to the program today knows, we can't get nurses here in Ireland. We can't get doctors. They're flying off to Australia, Saudi Arabia, and everywhere to work. So even from an expansion point of view, you know, they're speaking out of both sides of their mouths. We simply cannot get the staff. We have a shortage of nursing staff in this country. We have a shortage of doctors in this country. So the, the HSE need to get real here. And they're not listening, but they have to listen. And I want our senior politicians out there, our, minister, our three ministers and our senior politicians to listen to what the councillors of the county are saying from their own parties, that they have to take on board what we're saying. We represent the views of the entire county, and it has to be listened to. And it's about time the government uh, got the Lee Rohde to say to the HSE, no. This is not going to happen. We're going to expand and we're going to upgrade Navin Hospital. That's what has to happen. This needs courage. It okay, needs and, courage and, of conviction so. of, of the government to stand up to the HSE for once. lead this by the nose.
3: Yeah, well, Nick, you're going to meet Stephen Donnelly. Just just bear with me, anymore. Uh Nick, yeah, you're going to meet yeah, the min- Minister for Health next week and you're going to say it's time to upgrade Navin. If the Minister says, well, that's a matter for the HSE, and the HSE says, sorry, logic says we upgrade Drogheda and we downgrade Navin, what are you going to do then?
7: Well, I'm going to be asking them, where are they going to get the staff to upgrade Navin? Where are they going to get the capacity to fill all the jobs they're talking about? If They're not there. Like, they're simply not there. The HSE, I mean, the HSE HR system is in a mess at the moment because they simply cannot fill posts. They're out trawling the world trying to get nurses. Our own nurses, uh, it's not attractive for them enough. They're flying out of the country as soon as they come out uh, of university. So, you know, Minister Donnelly has to listen very right. carefully to what's been said. Yeah. And he has to take on board and make a judgment call as to whether he sides with what people are saying to him or the medical people are saying. And we can have an excellent facility in Navan if he provides the staff, a consultant that's needed to be there. We, we do already have great nursing staff working in the hospital, helping people and saving lives and they do that every day of the week Okay, that mustn't be forgotten.
3: Okay Emer, I'm going to leave the last word with you Um, AIM2 are holding a public meeting in the New Grange Hotel on June the 30th. I mean on the basis that people show up they're all going to basically say uh, what you've been saying this morning but I suppose the question is how do you convince the government that Navin needs to be upgraded uh, and bearing in mind the costs and as Nick just mentioned there the lack of expertise, the lack of staff, how do you get around this problem whereby uh, Navin is not up to the same standard or doesn't have the same level of expertise as Drogheda? How do you get around this? And I mean, if it's all about money, as you know, uh, the government is pretty stretched as it is.
4: Look,
5: feet on the street is going to be the first way that we're going to get the message conveyed to the government and to the HSC. There's going to be another rally. There's absolutely no way the people in need are going to accept this at all. Um, there's a, there's a very important point, uh, Ken, which we didn't mention. This is a GP referral. The new proposed unit now is going to need a GP referral. Now, I'll just tell you, yesterday morning, my husband tried to get an appointment for our 10-year-old son yesterday morning. He got a call at 6.30 yesterday evening to say they were so busy, they were so sorry, they couldn't uh, get back to, to my husband. So then my husband rang the doc on call around 7 o'clock yesterday evening, got speaking to the, to the nurse to give all the details. Um, he got a call back at half 11 in the evening, and at that stage, uh, our child was in bed asleep. Now, that is a situation in terms of trying to get a GP. I would say 15 to 20 constituents every single week coming into me saying they can't get through to their GP. How, in the name of God, are we going to run a system where we need a GP uh, referral when we cannot get a GP? Every last one of them will tell you they are out the door, extremely busy. And the panic and and the insecurity you're going to leave in people's lives because they cannot... You know, get uh, emergency or accidental care. It really is not well thought out. It just seems a cobbled together plan to all save right. a bit of uh, budgetary overruns. And the final thing 70,000 people signed up for the I- Ireland on call during COVID. And we all know 400 and something people were employed to work in the HSC. So this thing of saying we're going to expand, than we're going to do X, Y, and Z and bring in all these people who have fantastic expertise is all pie in the sky okay. stuff. There's absolutely no confidence that the HPRC is going to deliver on okay,
3: this. OK, we're going to have so to, to leave it there.
5: It to stay in me.
3: We're going to have to leave it there. No doubt this story is going to rumble on in the days and weeks ahead. That's Nick Killian and Emer Tobin, both joining us, by the way, from Copenhagen, where they're uh, attending a a conference. And I should point out, by the way, that Sinn Féin is holding um, a protest outside Leinster House today at one o'clock, and that they're also introducing a private member's motion in the Dáil next week, uh, opposing measures to wind down the Accident and Emergency Department at Navin Hospital. OK, more to come. We'll take a break.
1: Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
3: Now, there are some horror stories emerging from the hospitality sector of people paying what appeared to be extortionate rates for accommodation, rates that are completely out of kilter uh, with other European countries. And we seem to have a situation whereby that as the economy gets back on its feet after the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, people in the hotel sector in particular, uh, have pushed up prices for accommodation, for food, and we're hearing some really bad stories about extraordinary charges for car rental, which is going to have a negative knock-on effect uh, on the tourism sector. Neve Smith is the Fianna Fault TD for Cavan Monaghan. She's chair of the Orochlands Joint Committee on Tourism, and indeed, she's a former Eastmeath resident herself, and she joins me on the line right now. Uh, first of all, Neve, you had the sector in yesterday. Uh, they've been making making all sorts of excuses about rising costs and so on. Were you convinced by the excuses they gave you?
8: No, no. Good morning, Ken, firstly to you and your listeners, and thanks for having me on your show. Um, You're absolutely right, yesterday we had a very robust discussion in the Oireachtas Committee with Responsibility for Tourism and at that we had representatives from the Irish Hotels Federation, we also had the Irish Tourism Industry Confederation, we had Fall to Ireland and we also had officials in from the department itself who deal with tourism. And I suppose it's important, Ken, because I'm conscious we're talking, uh, you know, in a regional area there on your own show. Uh, This is not, I suppose, um, this is not a problem that we see in towns like Navan or Drogheda or you know the more regional tourism destinations this seems to be isolated very much and specific to the more urban areas like dublin and galway and and, and um, perhaps cork maybe a little bit too but it was a very robust discussion and i don't think sadly any of our members were kind of convinced really um by the presentations that we had that it was uh, in any way acceptable or that there was any excuses for it i suppose it's important to say We all know that the cost has has gone through the roof for everybody in business, whether it be energy. Yesterday we got specific examples, I suppose, of energy increases of 88%, food and beverages of 18%, linen services of 30%, insurance increases of 20%. But at the end of the day... um, Ken, I suppose the point is we are as an island trying to promote ourselves and we've seen I suppose the reputational damage that's been around Dublin Airport over recent weeks. We've seen the ongoing problem around the passport office. And here we go in the in the recent weeks listening to, you know, people being charged exorbitant prices and they are exorbitant and extortionate when we're talking specifically around our capital city. And people there is a sense there that prices get hiked up not just at peak season but when there's events on, whether it be a sporting event, uh, a concert that's on, and people that feel, feel very agreed that that is very targeted. And not only does it affect visitors coming into the country, but it affects our, our domestic tourism economy as well.
3: And of course, when these visitors come into the country and they go back to where they came from and people say, how did you get on in Ireland? Yeah, the weather was great, the people were friendly, but the costs were extortionate and that discourages others from coming here again, which means in theory uh, tourism numbers could drop. So they're all whinging uh, about but the fact that they themselves have uh, had to experience rising costs right across the sector. So what can you do to bring these costs down?
8: Well, I'll just give you the example, Ken. I mean, yesterday, Senator Shane Castles in, uh, uh, gave the example that yesterday, for example, the Marco Hotel were quoting 650, almost 700 euro for a bed, a double bed in their hotel room for that night. He, on the other hand, could go and book three flights for himself and two of his children to Spain for the same price.
3: And you yeah, can even go to exactly. California for that price, yeah.
8: Well exactly. And this is the point we're pushing people abroad. We spent two years as a government, as a government, we spent two years promoting staycation, promoting regional tourism. And it has to be fair to to fall to Ireland who are consistently trying to encourage people to go to counties like Meath and Lead and Cavan and Monaghan and far beyond the Dublin area. But as as Paul Kelly rightly points out, Dublin is the gateway city to everywhere else. So in other words, if people are getting ripped off, and they absolutely are when it comes to some hotel prices in Dublin, not all, uh, that is an, an immediate impact right across the country and the island in terms of getting people out to the more regional areas. RTE did a very good package the other day. They interviewed some people, um, who, tourists who had come into this country. And to hear American tourists saying they went for a bnb and b because they couldn't actually afford the hotel prices in Dublin City. I mean, it is doing a uh, reputational, international reputational damage. And that is the fear that we have this. I mean, the other the point is that the fall to Ireland, you know, they have facts and statistics and analysis done that up to this point, if you come into this country, they, they, there was an 8% of people saying that they got poor value. For money, however, 80% of people reporting they always got good value for money. So I mean, this kind of rhetoric, and it's not just rhetoric; it is hard facts. If you, I haven't done it today, but if you Google, you know, trying to get a bed in Dublin today, I'm sure it would be astronomical. And as I said, people really feel that there is this tendency that once a concert's announced, once there's an All Ireland game on, you know, prices go through the roof and make it. You know, just impossible for people who might be coming from Galway or Cork and want to stay in the city. But it also has the effect of the international tourism. Uh, industry coming into yeah, this so, country <clears throat> and feeling they're being
3: ripped off. Okay, so obviously the greed factor is alive and well. Now, there's a couple of issues here. Is this uh, hoteliers, even publicans and restaurants, just basically trying to recoup lost revenue during the COVID pandemic period, or is this being driven by the fact, as we've been discussing earlier on, that for example, fuel costs have risen as a result of the war in Ukraine and this is being knocked on across a load of sectors?
8: Well, look, there is, I suppose, the the problem, and again Paul Kelly alludes to that, we have to look at the solution. The first thing is the government have been foursquare, and everybody in the tourism sector would be candid in saying that, Four square behind the tourism sector and kept the VAT rate reduced as they require. So, I mean, in terms of government intervention, that's the real practical way that they can do that and have done that. And the annoyance here is that that is not being passed on to the consumer. Now, the um, Irish Fe- Hotels Federation <clears throat> made the point that, you know, you're talking about excessive prices for a small number of rooms that's perhaps left in the market. But the point is, if the room is available to somebody... May all may, or may it be that they booked it maybe two weeks ago or three weeks ago at 200 euro. Why? Just because it's the last couple of beds, would it become 700 euro on the one night? So, I mean, um the other point that I were making was you know, we have had, I suppose, no development, ha- we have had COVID. I would have to say, Ken, there is no doubt that the tourism sector has had a harrowing. Harrowing sure. a number of years in tourism. And, you know, there has to be, there, there is a bit of makeup. We are not an island that has seven months of sun. That's uh, a fact. Uh, so the tourism sector has to, I suppose, make hay when the sun shines, if you like. And, you know, you can go anywhere else in the country, it has to be said. Uh, and I think you will get reasonable rates, you will get good value, you'll get a uh, lovely fa- family. I think Ireland kind of reinvented itself during po- COVID before sure. the staycation. is against us, so, you know, okay. the regional tourism has to happen and, and make the most of oh, your. Oh, 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 but if oh, 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 I could oh. just say this
3: very quickly, yeah.
8: Yeah, just, we, there is a problem in terms of the capacity and we don't seem to have the beds that we need to cope with the demand coming into the city centre, OK? So there is an issue there and that can be addressed, I believe, from Vought Irons, there's about 3,500 beds coming on stream over the next two. And it has to be said, some of the beds have been taken out of the system because of the humanitarian crisis and people coming into this country. So, there...
3: but What I'm asking you is, in terms of government policy, what can, uh, what can the government do to address this problem either by adjusting VAT rates or, you know, uh, imposing less taxes on, on the sector? What can they do to get prices down while at the same time maintaining competitiveness?
8: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I do go back to the VAT rate and there was a huge campaign on, on around the last budget to ensure that the VAT rate stayed as it is. And I mean, the government will be trying to do that yet again. And it has a huge impact, not just in the tourism, but on the tourism service industry as well. So that's one of the things. And it has to be said, uh, the government is fighting might and main to, to, to work along the department, was saying the officials to provide the training. And of we did have a brain drain where I suppose people left the industry during COVID because there was such uncertainty around it and those people have gone on to other jobs and other careers. So there is a body of work to be done there from government, from an education point of view, providing the schemes, ensuring that there's uh, the skill set there because that is another problem within the tourism industry. You know, recruitment and retention and we see that across so many industries but it is very prevalent and I actually believe that there's hotels rooms not available in city centres because they haven't got the staff to uh, for the upkeep and the maintain, maintenance of those rooms. So there is, I suppose, a combination in terms of the reasons of the problems around this and government will be doing everything along with to Ireland, along with the Irish uh, Hotel Federation and the officials in the department to try and rectify both the recruitment and retention, keeping the VAT rate as it is. And it has to be said that most of these businesses have been sustained by the very generous Uh, grants that were put in place to to keep them going and keep the businesses alive uh, during COVID.
3: Okay, we'll have to leave it there. I just want to thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. That's uh, Neve Smith, who is the Fianna Fáil TD for Cavan Monaghan and is also chair of the Oireachtas Committee on Tourism. Now, just to go back to an earlier item, I think I said that uh, Nick Killian and Emart Tobin were at a conference in Copenhagen. I was wrong. They're actually in Copenhagen as part of a delegation to meet the company Rambol that rolls out infrastructure to get people out of their cars to walk and cycle. So, my apologies there if I Misled you. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break.
1: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM Well,
3: as you probably heard in the news yesterday, the European Commission has begun legal action against the United Kingdom in connection with Boris Johnson's government introducing legislation that will overturn large parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, the Commission has relaunched legal proceedings that were halted last year and are expected to announce new proceedings as part of its initial response to the legislation. Karen Coleman, is a regular voice in this program. She's editor of EuroParl Radio and joins me on the line right now. Uh, this legal action, uh, the European Commission is saying that the British have uh, breached an international treaty, and the British are saying they haven't. So where are we at?
9: Well, we're at uh, where we've been at many, many times, um, where you don't, you just can't get agreement between the EU and the UK on the difficulties surrounding the Northern Ireland Protocol, the publication last week of the uh, British bill on the protocol and its um, suggested proposed changes to it of course have caused ructions within EU circles it was expected and what you had yesterday was the um, EU coming out with its response to the publication of that bill. Now the infringement proceedings that are being taken by the EU, which Mara Shefkovic, the EU Vice President, announced details of yesterday. They're pretty low key for the moment, um, but this is the EU trying to see if it can bring the UK around before it, it takes much more serious um, legal action, which would be, of course, connected with maybe a trade war if it, if it um, goes and does something with the uh, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement between the EU and the UK. So, what it's doing at the moment is reactivating an infringement proceeding that it launched last March, and it's also then launching two new infringement proceedings, accusing the e, uh, the UK of breaching um, the the Northern Ireland, significant parts, it's calling it, of the protocol in Ireland and Northern Ireland.
3: OK, I mean, let's assume the European Commission wins this case. What sort of tariffs or punishments can they impose on the British uh, for basically going off on a solo run and attempting to, if you like, abolish the Northern Ireland protocol?
9: Well, we're not at a stage yet where they're going to impose tariffs and um, when Mara was asked about this yesterday at the press conference, you know, following his announcement of the infringement proceedings. He basically was saying they're not going to go down that route. yet. that would be very serious if they actually triggered something that would impose tariffs on goods coming from the UK into the EU. And obviously the UK would be expected to retaliate the same way. So what they're doing is a sort of a step-by-step Gently, gently, if you like, approach at the moment to try and see if they can win the UK around. So these infringement proceedings, I mean, for example, the first one, um, which was started last March and which they put on hold, they're now taking it to what they call a second stage by issuing a reasoned opinion. And they're they saying that they want the UK government to reply to these this infringement proceeding and that if they don't get a reply within the two months, within two months, the Commission could consider taking the UK to the European Court of Justice. Um, and then the other two proceedings will also have to follow a certain route. I mean, the first is they're saying that the UK failed to carry out obligations in terms of checks along the border control posts in Northern Ireland. And they're failing to provide the EU with necessary trade statistics data in respect of goods also being traded. So the UK has two months to reply um, to these initial um, legal proceedings that have been now launched by the EU. But obviously the EU is hoping that it can continue to talk to the UK in terms of its solutions that it is providing, the solutions it believes will alleviate the problems that businesses and others in Northern Ireland um, and, of course, in Britain as well, are experiencing because of the issues trading goods between the two regions. Um, but whether that's going to happen or not, obviously, it, it remains to be seen. We don't know how the UK is going to respond to these infringement proceedings. I mean, past behaviour would suggest they won't take much notice of them at the moment.
1: Uh,
3: This decision by the British to basically bin the Northern Ireland Protocol, I mean, is this being driven by the DUP or is it the right-wingers in the... the European Research Group, who take the view that because Northern Ireland, if you like, enjoys the best of both worlds, it's in the UK, but it's also in the European single market, so to speak. But that means then that the European Commission still has a a toe in the UK, if you follow what I mean. Who exactly is pushing this? Or is it the fact that Boris Johnson has to be a little bit more firm in light of the fact that he scraped home in the confidence vote there two weeks ago?
9: Well, I think it's a mix of all those things, uh, Ken. But obviously, the Eurosceptic wing of the British Tory party and government is extremely anti-EU, as we know. They don't want to comply with EU legislation. They consider aspects of the protocol as breaching the sovereignty of the United Kingdom. um, And they don't like any role EU courts. So the European Court of Justice, which is another big issue of contention which is connected with the Northern Ireland Protocol, that those against it, they want to remove the role of the European Court of Justice. So, of course, the Eurosceptical wing of the British Tory government and party are very keen to rid... all kinds of EU involvement in the UK legislation, including that of the protocol. But we know, of course, the DUP has been very against aspects of the protocol. They have um, refused to take part in power sharing at Stormont, and this was supposed to be a sort of a carrot approach to the DUP by publishing this bill to try and woo them back to establish um, power sharing in Stormont.
3: Okay. Karen, you spend a lot of time in Brussels and Strasbourg. I mean, from the people you've been speaking to whether they're in the Commission or indeed in the European Parliament, what do the MEPs and the Commission officials actually think of the British over the way they've dealt with this whole Brexit process?
9: I think you can, um, uh, you can probably confidently say, I could confidently say, the majority of them are incredibly frustrated. and They throw their hands up in the air when the British come out with something like this. And time and time again, when these issues are discussed, for example, in debates in the European Parliament, I mean, you will find that the majority of MEPs from all sides in the european parliament far very extreme radical groups tend to be supportive of the irish position in terms of the protocol they know an awful lot about the good friday agreement about the protocol itself when for example Hall martin um addressed the european parliament last week there was general agreement with what he was saying about um, the situation with the british and the protocol so i mean i think when the british come out with something like this it just reminds people of the hardened eurosceptical stance that certain uh, aspects of of the of british um politics took and, and of course we were very successful in in achieving the brexit um, deal at the end of the day, so I, I think there's just general exasperation. Um, I think the, the Commission just doesn't know what to do at this stage. It, it like for example, Maroshevskovic yesterday, he he repeated a number of their solutions that they have come up with to try and get the British on board. He waived three pages of a cert that he said is the only requirement now for a lorry full of goods coming from Britain into Northern Ireland, and that. And um, the British proposal, which is this dual regulatory system and of checks on goods, would be completely, would overwhelm businesses with paperwork. So the Commission believes it is time and time again coming up with solutions that will absolutely alleviate the problems businesses have in Northern Ireland and those in, in Britain Bringing goods over to Northern Ireland, and they don't understand why the okay. UK and why the DUP aren't accepting those solutions. Yeah.
3: Just very quickly, Karen, when do we expect the outcome of this court case?
9: Oh, they're going to take. I mean, this is going to take ages. It's, it's. Um, you know, they've got. They're going to wait. First of all, for a response from the U from the UK, and then uh, it may take up to a year before any formal, you know, the next moves will take place. So, I think this is more a kind of a negotiating tactic. Um, It's going to take a... It will take a while before those infringement proceedings gather any momentum, really.
3: All right. And that means then, in theory, that until this court case is, um, if you like, dealt with and uh, ruled upon, uh, the DUP will continue to stay out of the executive instalment. All right. That's uh, Karen Coleman there, editor of Europarl Radio. We'll take take a break. Michael
1: Michael Reed on on LMFM.
3: Just some of your comments on Navin Hospital. Margaret was in touch to say, is Paul Reed saying that the hospital in Navin is the only hospital in the country that's risky? If that's the case, why don't the HSE audit all the hospitals with regard to risks and safety issues? Regarding fuel poverty, Sheila is not a bit surprised that so many households are already struggling with fuel poverty. The price of fuel and living in general has gone through the roof, so to speak. People can not keep up. Declan from Navin was in touch to say that the fear of God is now being put into people over the hospital issue uh, and that it's now no longer safe. What would I say, what I would say to the HSC and the government is to make it safe. It is just not good enough. Patients deserve more. Now, at last night's Finnegale Parliamentary Party. The party unanimously agreed to back a motion supporting the extension of the Irish Rail short hop zone. The proposed extension would result in passengers from Gormanston, Leytown, Drogheda, Enfield, Newbridge, and Wicklow all benefiting from substantial reductions in ticket prices. The motion came following a lengthy fairer fares campaign from Finnegale councillor in Mead, Sharon Tolan, who joins me on the line right now. So, Sharon, first of all, will you just explain. Uh, in relation to ticket prices, uh how somebody will say living in Leytown uh might have to pay more than will say somebody living in Balbriggan.
10: Oh, it's a massive jump and good morning Ken and good morning to your listeners. Um you know, an, an adult uh, monthly ticket from Leytown uh, to Dublin Connolly is two hundred and thirty currently two hundred and thirty seven euro where is from Balbriggan.
3: It's just give me that figure monthly. Monthly, monthly yes.
10: Yeah, an adult monthly is 237 euro, but from Balbriggan it's 145 euro. That's the basic rate from from Balbriggan uh, they've also received a 20% reduction uh for using Leap card uh, services in Balbriggan which we don't uh, avail of that, that reduction at late time. Um, so anywhere outside the short hop zone does not get any leap card reductions that are introduced to um, to commuters unannounced by the NTA. So um, a student monthly alone is €178 Euros from Leytown, uh, whereas it's €100 Euros from Balbrigan. So, you know, people have been raising this itch- issue with me for a long, long time, Ken. Um, the cost of living, obviously, is increasing of late. But for a long, long time, people have struggled with paying Um, a monthly fare if they're regularly using the the rail service a lot of people are remaining in their cars and they're either driving all the way into Dublin or they're driving to Balbriggan to avail of the cheaper fare there
3: so just under the new proposals then and and uh, I just need to ask you about the new fares um, the existing fare locks into what would be if you like the Balbriggan fare how soon does this come into effect
10: Well, I I, I don't know that yet, Ken, and this is still just one step closer to getting it delivered. So this was a motion last night by the Parliamentary Party to support the extension. We now have to convince our partners in government, Minister Eamon Ryan, Minister for Transport, to instruct the NTA. Um, to include that as part of their transport strategy in the Greater Dublin area. You would have seen probably over, over the previous months, um, I was encouraging uh, many people, as many people as possible, to make submissions during the public consultation. We had hundreds of submissions, uh, the NTA received hundreds of submissions in relation to the fares and the disparity of fares alone from Gormanston, Leytown and Drogheda. And I want to thank the people who got involved and made those submissions so we're now waiting for the publication of that transport strategy. And the next uh, number of weeks is is the key, I suppose, crunch time for, for uh, ensuring that the NTA do include it in that transport strategy and extend the short hop zone. Um, obviously, my colleagues in in Kildare and Wicklow were receiving similar um, issues from their constituents and they got on board with minister mcintee in relation to the motion at the parliamentary party okay. last night so
3: okay well uh, just it's
10: a big step forward but yeah. we're not there yet
3: yeah well i'm just thinking here of the way the rail system works does this new this this new extension of the rail short hop zone does it extend to Drogheda, or is is Layton and gormanson as far as it goes
10: Oh, no, no. It's a, including Drogheda. Uh, I, I ensured that it would include Drogheda. It's a 55 kilometre uh, range from uh, Dublin Connolly, so it would include Drogheda. Um, you know, we've 22,000 vehicles travelling through Julianstown on a daily basis, and a large portion of those are people from Drogheda, Leytown, Eastmead, Betty's Town, all of that area, uh, who are staying in their cars to either access a short top zone ticket in Balbriggan or driving further afield and and driving all the way into Dublin.
3: Okay, well this all sounds like good news. I'm sure you're particularly uh, excited yourself that uh, the push you made on this has finally come to fruition.
10: Oh, absolutely, Ken. You know, we'll all benefit from a substantial reduction in ticket prices. Obviously, as I said, the cost of living, but the quality of life for people. um, And, you know, it will have a substantial impact on our reduction of emissions Uh, carbon emissions as well but you know for people even who want to take just a day trip in maybe to the theatre or to do some shopping uh, they're avoiding the train. We have a great service there and it will right. be improved with the electrification of the line and the delivery of the dart. But there's no point in having a good service if it's unaffordable. Right. Um, a cheaper seat has got to be better than an empty seat. So that's the, the point we're trying to make to the NTA.
3: OK, and of course, in theory then, less a tailbacks on the road. Well, listen, well done, Sharon. Uh, I think politicians deserve a pat on the back when they do something that's in the best interests of the electorate and indeed Irish consumers. That's it for this morning. I want to thank Maggie Maguire Marie Kearns who put the program together. Chris Murray was on sound. Sinead Brazzle is next. I'm Ken Murray. I'll talk to you again tomorrow morning just after the 9 o'clock news. And until then, bye for now. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie
6: Here's
8: a cool fact.